Esther chapter 4. Now, if you have kids, or maybe even remember this from your own life, but, uh, you know, you have a pretty good day, everything's great, everybody's doing a lot of playing outside, it's wonderful, you finally get the kids to bed, they're all kind of tucked in, you're like, man, this is great, you know, this, this is the way it was supposed to be, right? Family. And then all of a sudden, you, you hear one of your kids going ballistic in the back room there, you know, like, Wah! you know how that is? I'm like, what? What possibly could be wrong now? You know, so you run back there, and, and they're like, ah, my legs are killing me. I can't sleep, you know. And so you're like, hey, here's your teddy bear. You try to force water down them and stuff like that. And they're crying, like, my legs, you know. You know, and they're, if they're like between the ages of three or five or eight to 12, and you're kind of rubbing their legs, and you're trying to sing them songs and all that sort of thing, and it's not working, you, you know that they're experiencing what we call what? Growing pains, right? And some of you have some ex- memories of that and what that looks like. And, and maybe some of you, that explains last night. And if you fall asleep in service, that's okay. I understand you're probably dealing with your kid with growing pains. Kids have growing pains. Uh, businesses, enterprises. All of a sudden, you're trying to move forward, but you're short on competent people. You need more money and you need more space. And you're trying to make things work. And you're experiencing some growing pains. Churches can experience growing pains. Fellowship. I mean, we're experiencing growing pains. Praise God, we're adding a new service and, you know, trying to make all that work out of space a lot of times, needing more resources, tremendous opportunities. We've got some growing pains, and we're feeling it. Believers, people, Christians, you know, we go through growing pains. God is trying to strip us away from our self-centeredness and humanistic philosophies and some of the sinful patterns that have perhaps gone unchallenged in our lives, and all of a sudden God starts addressing those. That's not easy. can be painful. It's growing pains. And if you you want a firsthand experience of what growing pains looks like and what God is seeking to do, all you have to do is open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4, and you're going to find that Mordecai and Esther get hit hard with growing pains. Now, let me just bring you up to speed here. Uh, if you have uh, may perhaps missed a lesson or two as we've been making our way through the book here, let's all get started here, um, kind of give you a little background here. There are, living in the Persian Empire at this time, about 15 million Jews. About 70 years prior to this time, uh, they had been hauled out of the southern kingdom, out of Judah and Jerusalem, by Babylon, and they actually had hauled them into the Babylonian Empire, and the Jews were starting to grow and develop and flourish. They were experiencing punishment. They totally disregarded God. They thought they'd do life on their own. God said, I want you to experience joy in me and life, but if you'd like to go and pursue the gods of this world, well, we can do that, but you're not going to like it, and there's consequences for your sin. One of those is exile, and so they got hauled off into exile. Well, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire actually conquered the Babylonians, And there was a king by the name of Cyrus, and he actually allowed the Jews not only to go back, he said, listen, I'm actually going to fund you. I will fund the rebuilding of your city and even the rebuilding of your temple. And just like God had said, you know, there's going to be opportunity to go back and to go back to the promised land. I mean, you'd think this would be every Jew's dream. But in reality, even though there were about 15 million Jews in the empire, the Persian Empire at this point, only 50,000 is estimated that went back. I mean, why would you go to want to go back to a place that's all desolate? I mean, the t- town's all tore apart. And there's no temple. I mean, it's hard work. Why not stay in the heart of Persia, man? Largest empire ever known in the world. 
And it's, you got it good. And there's a lot of money. And these Jewish people were smart and they were good at business and they were they had done well. They had amalgamated in the culture. Many of them were starting to actually lose their identity of Jewish people. They're just totally fitting in and they're living life large. Well, you recall what took place. There was a, a king by Cyrus, son, Darius. He goes and he said, you know, my empire, even though it's the biggest it's ever been, I think I'd like to take over those Greeks and the Greek city states. So he goes and he wages war on them and uh, doesn't work like he thought it would. He has some significant losses. He gets beat, gets sent back home. So he's back, and while he's gonna, I'm going to take revenge on those Greeks. Well, while he's preparing and planning, he dies. And so he leaves vengeance to his son, a guy by the name, the Greek name, Xerxes, King Xerxes. You find him here in the book of Esther. His name is Ahasuerus. And so he's planning, strategizing. He's got 127 provinces, so he throws in Esther chapter 1 a six-month party where he goes and he wines and dines all the key diplomats and all the major players in his kingdom. He's already had a couple revolts, so he's trying to unite everybody in this one great cause. We're going to go and we're going to walk through Greece and we're going to take them over. And he wins them over, and then his final culminating event, he throws a one-week party. Everyone's invited. And the highlight of his party... He is persuaded you ought to bring the queen in, Vashti, have her appear with her crown and the ideas with nothing else. And she hears is like, really, you think that's a good idea? I got two words for the king. No way. There's no way. I'm not showing up like that. You're crazy. No way. So she sends a message back. And if you're an egomaniac, remember King Xerxes, this is the guy who actually we have an inscription. He refers to himself as the king of kings. Okay. Sound familiar? The guy thinks he is like a little god. He runs his life that way, runs his kingdom that way. Well, he's all like, what do you mean? Someone said no to me, so what do you do? So he checks his advisors. They think, you've got to get rid of Vashti. So he does. He divorces her, poses her as queen. And uh, then he's finally able to be successful, rally his troops. And so he's got about 250,000, if not a lot more. They're going to go, and they're going to take it out on the Greek city-states. Well, if you know your history... He got royally spanked. He gets out there, and he finds out these Greeks know something about fighting, and they have their own little Alamo event, and, even, and they, they literally are able to push back the Persian Empire, push back the armies that are trying to invade. Then in Salamis, there is the, this place where they actually have uh, lose about 300 of their ships. Their navy is almost completely decimated. And so with that... We find King Hazarius, Xerxes, he makes his way back to the empire. He's got his tail between his legs. No longer is he kind of the king dog. I mean, he's still very powerful. He's still the most powerful man in the world. But now he's really sad about life. I mean, he's totally depressed. He's listening to country music. He's just, man, he's, he's feeling it, man. He's in a funk. His advisors are like, this is not good, man. When the king's not happy, no one can be happy, you know? Right? And so what do we do? Hey, hey we got the idea. You know what? They think what the king really needs, he just needs, he just needs a woman. He just needs another queen, right? That's the answer to all guys' problems, right? You just need to be married to the right gal, right? I mean, what the advisor should have said is, you need God, man. You got serious holes in your life. No, they, so he, they throw this idea like, you know, let's go find the most beautiful women in the empire, man. We will make a major search. We'll find them all in. Historians say they rounded up about 400 of the most beautiful women in the Persian Empire. They haul them in. They make them a part of his harem. They are now legally his concubines. 
even though they never met the man and likely didn't want to. The guy's an egomaniac. What they do is they treat these girls to a one-year spa treatment. Do whatever you want. Pick out whatever clothes you want. Better get some skills and some talents. You got one night with the king. And the, very, the king picks the one that he likes the very best, and that one becomes the queen. Now, we are introduced to a little orphan girl by the name of Hadassah. And she is, I mean, talking about the bottom of the food chain. Okay, she's an orphan girl, and she's adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. Now, they had kind of fit pretty well into the culture, and she does whatever Mordecai says. Mordecai apparently doesn't like to make any waves, likes to keep things, you know, fitting into the culture, go with the flow, tells, tells Hadassah, listen, you know what, we got to we got to never mention that we're Jewish, all right? That's just not in vogue. There's a couple things you don't talk about in life. You don't talk about politics, and you don't talk about your personal religion. Sound familiar? We just never talk about those things. In fact, we're going to help you out. This, this Abdassa name, we're going to change your name. Your name is uh, going to be now, uh, we need a good name. Let's go with uh, Esther. We're going to name you after Ishtar, the goddess, the Babylonian goddess of love and war. I mean, that's cool, right? And you're going to have a nice name that fits in real well with our Persian culture, and you're going to fit in real well. Well, guess when those what happens? Those harem scouts they go out, and Esther, Hadassah, she's beautiful in form and face. They're like, "You're coming, gal." You'd have thought that Mordecai would be like, "No way! You are not going to take this girl and wreck her life because to be one of the king's concubines, yeah, it might be plush, and you might have nice stuff, but you're going to go crazy." Because you're going to be treated as an object. You're actually going to be a possession of the king. And it's not going to be pretty. But he goes along with it, or maybe they didn't have a choice. She is captured by the harem scouts. Does, she actually seems to win favor, even with one of the king's eunuchs. You know? And she's like, she's kind of gets the top spot. And lo and behold, this little Jewish orphan girl who has fit completely into the culture, she becomes the king's choice. She replaces Queen Vashti, and she becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. And so we find this situation here, and some people think like, wow, this is all great. It's a dream come true. You have a little beauty pageant, and she wins, and she's the queen, right? Not so fast. There's a guy by the name of Haman who rises to power, and we saw him last week in chapter 3. So much does he rise and wins the king's favor that the king actually makes him one of his top guys. And he even issues an edict that you're supposed to bow down every time you see Haman. For a guy who's an egomaniac, he'd probably love that. Probably probably made just public appearances like, here I am, you know, and everybody bows down. Like, I love my life. This is so good. I feel so important. I just love this. Now, everybody is bowing down except this one Jewish guy by the name of Mordecai. Mr. Mr. I will make make no waves. Go ahead, take off of my adopted daughter, turn her into a concubine. Okay, I'm not going to fight about that. You know, woman's got to make her own choice or whatever. But I'm going to die on this hill. No way am I going to bow down. I mean, talk about a guy who doesn't know how to pick his fights very well. He decides this is where I'm going to I'm going to draw the line in the sand, right? Well, he's thinking that that's going to work. He all his friends. He's got a pretty plush position now. He's at the king's gate. He's got authority, position. This is where all the business was done. Economy was being driven by what decisions are made here. This is where he's at. All of his friends are like, this is a stupid idea. This is really bad. You really should bow down to Haman. Come on. All the other folks do it. Uh, it's protocol. The king has even issued an edict as if, like, he saw Haman and he didn't think, like, you know, I think I'll bow down. No. Well, he says, no, I don't, no way. And then he plays the religion card. Besides, 
I'm Jewish. As if like that's a get out of jail free card. Like I don't have to bow down to people like Haman. Well, he tells them that. How do you think Haman's going to handle this? You know any egomaniacs? Guys are just crazy about power? Well, he goes ballistic. And not only does he know that now that, that Mordecai is a Jew, not as he's going to deal with him, he says, I'm going to exterminate the entire race. He goes, he goes and visits the astrologers. They cast lots. They pick a day. They got a day 11 months out where he's, he feels like this is when the gods want the Jews exterminated. This is madness, satanic, demonic power under just widespread. It's just on steroids. It's exponential. It is just growing. And he's like, I'm going to kill them all. And he's fascinated and fixated with the idea of exterminating the Jews. He is, becomes like a Hitler. And so he, he goes, all he needs to do is get the king on his side on this. So what he does is he tells the king, you know, there's some people, and they don't follow your laws, and they think they're going to be a problem for you, and you know, what you need to do is just get rid of them. And, you know, I can sweeten the deal here for you. You see, uh, they had actually lost a lot of resources. They had maybe national debt, so to speak. And what you, when you've got a guy like Haman who says, you know what, I'm willing to pay you 10,000 talents of silver, equivalent to about $245 million, I'll, I'll give you this, this favor if you'll do a favor for me. And it's a bribe. affects the governments even to this day. If you want to see terrible leadership, all you have to do is look at Esther, the king Hazareth, Xerxes. He doesn't even look into it. doesn't even find out who they are. He goes, yeah, why don't you take care of it? He takes off his signet ring. That means he gives all power. He says, go ahead and do what you need to do. And so with Haman, he seals the document. On the eve of Passover, the edict goes out for the death of all the Jews. And so... We've got it going out, and now the question in the minds of all the Jews, now they're facing their very end. It is the law of the land. They are going to be killed and exterminated, and it's coming out on the eve of Passover. And the question is, like, does God still care about us? We, his covenant people, though we are far from him geographically and spiritually, we have amalgamated in the culture. In fact, there's oftentimes no difference between us and the rest of the world. Is God still going to be faithful? That is what's running through their mind, and they want to know, how in the world is a faithful God going to change the situation? The question that's really going to arise is, how does a faithful God transform a fallen people? Maybe you're wrestling with that. How does he change us, even with all the bad decisions that we've made? I wanted to take a look at Esther chapter 4. How does our friend Mordecai now handle it? Now that he's the reason all the Jewish people, it's estimated about 15 million, are going to die because of his arrogance. We'll look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and, sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. These are all the visible signs of grief, mourning, and repentance. And sackcloth is this like goat hair garment, and they would wear this when they were trying to show that they're, they were completely broken inside, and they would tear their garments because they were trying to show that their heart was being broken. And even the Persians, when they lost their Persian navy at that battle of Salamis, the Persian soldiers literally tore their garments as well because it's a sign of distraught. We're broken. I, we can't believe what we're witnessing and seeing. And, he, and it says that he even has 
he's had ashes, what they would do, Jewish people, they would, they would either apply ashes to their face or they'd literally roll around in the ashes as a sign of brokenness and repentance. And he's crying and wailing bitterly. In verse 2, he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You see, kings lived in like a fantasy land, man. Everything is fine, perfect, right? No problems. And so you could never get past that. And you don't want to show up at the king's gate, look at all the stress, because he may not like that. If he doesn't like it, you probably die. And yet he's going public with his faith. You see that no longer is he just trying to fit in. He's like, he's not afraid anymore. And so verse 3, not only him, but look at this. In each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting. And when he finds fasting, it's refraining from food for the idea of prayerfully petitioning God to do something, to fix a situation that is beyond their control, and weeping and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth, and ashes. So you see all this brokenness taking place. Now, if you want to see what it was like to be nobility, notice verse 4. Esther and her maidens and her eunuchs are completely isolated from what is going on. In fact, they don't even know. Then Esther and her maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. So Esther's maidens and these eunuchs, these are her personal attendants, they come in their report. And this, this Mordecai, who every once in a while sends you messages, he's dressed up in sackcloth, he's wearing ashes, he's wailing and weeping, he's at the king's gate. I mean, he's usually there doing business, but something is terribly wrong. And it's like Esther, the one man that is always counted, she's counted on, who's always directed her life, she's, she comes unraveled because something is terribly wrong. And so she's like, listening to this and so she makes a decision she sent sack garments to clothe mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him but he did not accept them so she goes and she sends out these garments to hey you need to put these clothes on because you can't be acting like this what what is what's the matter what's going on she doesn't know so she's writhing in this pain because her world is coming unraveled but let me tell you what's taking place with mordecai how does a faithful god transform a fallen and a flawed people well i'll tell you it often happens when he brings us to difficult circumstances i mean think about it for mordecai he'd been kind of a chameleon he just matched the environment it was it was all worldly it was all good for him kind of in some jewish circles kind of played the jewish card but then he was totally incognito the other thing he had is pride pride had prompted his response to Haman. It was his pride that led to this Haman's genocidal retaliation. And then let me tell you something else. When God transforms people, he starts developing their faith. And you see this happening. There's signs of brokenness and repentance and dependence upon God. And something else that takes place is that when God is starting to transform an individual, there are defining decisions. And for Mordecai, he decides, I'm going to go public. Enough of this being the incognito believer. And he courageously actually takes a stand in a very visible way. And there's something else. When God transforms his people, there are displays of grace. When you see now he's no longer afraid and a a clinging to God and and a brokenness and a repentance, this is grace moving in a human heart. 
And I'll just tell you, folks that go through very difficult times, bankruptcy, lose their job, cancer, divorce, death of a loved one, some sort of painful rift in a relationship, they'll tell you, I would never want to go through that again. I'd never want anybody to have to face that. But it is in those times of great brokenness and difficult circumstances that I learned much about God. In fact, I'm different and changed because of these circumstances in my life. Well, why do you think Esther's going to respond to this? Well, Mordecai turns down the clothes. So, verse 5, Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her. So Hathak must be one of her king principal uh, advisors, attendants. And she orders him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. What is going on and why are you behaving this way? So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square from the, in front of the king's gate. So he goes and he finds Mordecai and Mordecai starts talking. Verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Obviously, Mordecai is in a key position because he has inside information. He knows about the 10,000 talents of silver. He knows the exact amount. He knows the bribes. He knows what Haman's doing. And notice verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her, now watch this, to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for, uh uh-oh, it's all going public now, her people. It is highly likely that Esther had never disclosed that she was Jewish. She's Esther after all, right? The king, her husband, didn't even know her origins. Likely no one else did. But now Mordecai says, you petition her to go and plead with the king himself for your people. So here we have this situation here where, you know, Esther's not ever been in a situation like this. She pretty much is like a twig in a river. She just goes with the current. She just goes with the flow. Mordecai always made the decisions. Then she's captured by harem scouts. Then she's made the queen. She's just kind of picked up and she's always just, people make decisions for her. It's like she, she doesn't think on her own. And we, with both with Mordecai and Esther, there's no hint of praying, reading the scripture before this, worshiping with God's people. None of that. There, there's none of that. And now it is put in front of her to plead for her people. Okay, so she's processing all this information. She's like, whoa. Hathak, verse 9, came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. And you could just see, you could see her just kind of unraveling and trying to process this. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, don't you understand the circumstances that I'm in? And so she says, verse 11, listen to these words. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law. There's not like 12 different ways to get to the king. There's one law, and this is it. You approach uninvited, look what he says, verse 11. 
but that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. He's got one law, and this is how it worked. You couldn't approach whenever you wanted. You would make an appeal to one of the king's eunuchs, one of his advisors. They would approach the king. If the king would want to see you, then you would get an invitation. And the idea is that if you approached the throne, they treated it as an assassination attempt. And that's why you see, even when in the reliefs, well, when you see the Persian king, right behind him, you see these soldiers. And they got swords, battle axe, spears. You know what those are for, like this relief right here? Because if you approach that throne, and it didn't matter who you were, you could be one of the king's even top advisors. But if you had not permission and an invitation, they literally treated it as an assassination attempt. And you already saw one earlier in this book. And they'd literally just kill you. They'd hack you right there in front of the king. They'd clean up the blood and move on. But that was life in the Persian kingdom because you'd never approach the king uninvited. And furthermore, Esther also gives another piece of information. Verse 11, And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. If you got the idea that, oh, isn't that sweet? This beautiful little fairy tale, Esther... Xerxes, the Hazarias, you know, they're going on walks every day, holding hands, singing songs to each other. No, they don't even talk. In fact, it looks like Hazarias, the king, is pretty busy with his harem. It's been 30 days. He hasn't even spoken to the queen. She's fallen out of favor. She's probably maybe no longer in vogue. What she's saying is, man, tell Mordecai, not only does the king have one law, but frankly, you know what? I'm out of favor. The king hasn't even called me for 30 days. And just remember this, you know, that's golden scepter. You see it in all these reliefs, especially when they're showing the Persian court. The the golden scepter had like this little knob. And the only way that if you approach the king uninvited, if the king should show choose, he could extend that scepter. And that scepter kind of represented like he was the shepherd of his people. I mean, obviously, like a guy like Xerxes is a true incredibly wicked shepherd, but he could extend that. If you touch the top of it, your life would be spared, but that would be the only way. She says that we know the law. I'm out of favor. There is no way that this is going to happen. And so she says, you tell Mordecai, my back is against the wall. I simply can't. And so verse 12, they related the words to Mordecai. Well, now what's going to happen here? What is, what's, what's going on? I'll tell you the wheels have got to be turning in Esther's heart because now she knows that God is doing something significant in Mordecai's heart. And if you want to see an amazing response, you want to see transformation, look at verses 13 and 14. So then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Remember who you are. You are a Jew. You are part of God's covenant people and there is an edict to exterminate all Jews. And just because you're the queen, you will not be spared. And then he says, this is an amazing passage, verse. You might want to underline it in verse 14. He says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place And you and your father's house will perish. He says, listen, if you are silent, 
If you play the, hey, can't help you here card, you need to know that you and your father's house, they're going to perish. But I know something. I know that God will bring about help in some other way in some other person. Now, wait a second. How in the world does he know that? How does he have the idea that God is not going to allow his people to be completely destroyed from the face of the earth? That's because Mordecai has the promise of God. From Genesis chapter 12, there was a covenant that God established with Abraham that he would have a, be a blessing to the nations and that his family would live forever. In fact, from his seed would come a promised one, a Messiah. And he knows that God would not allow his people to be completely exterminated. Though they may face some significant challenges, they will not perish from the face of the earth. He knows that, and he's holding on to that promise. You see, there is a revitalization going on in Mordecai's life. This is not the chameleon that we met in the early chapters. This guy's got fortitude, he's got backbone, and he's now growing in his faith. And he's saying, I know that somewhere God will provide help. And furthermore, he says, if you don't stand and actually recognize that you have an opportunity here, then you're going to perish. But notice how he ends this. This is so amazing. Verse 14. And who knows that whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. What he's saying is, don't you see that in God's providential timing, God has allowed you to be queen for such a time as this. Now for Esther, what's going on here? The question isn't like, what should I do? The question for Esther is, who should I be? Who am I? Remember, in this book, the only person that has two names is Esther, Hadassah. Who is she? Is she really one of God's covenant children with a life and a faith in him? Or is she Esther, the one named after the goddess of love and war? just amalgamated into the Persian culture. Who is she? You know, at some point, we all have to answer that question. Who are you? You just fit in, go with the flow, or are you willing to identify with the risen living God and his people? Who are you? Now, there's something that she's learning, and that is what is being appealed to here by Mordecai. How do you know that you've not attained royalty for such a time as this? You see, God in his sovereign providence has allowed you to be queen despite all the missteps that brought you there i was arrogant i should have stood in i should have never let you ever get captured by those harem scouts you should have never married this pagan guy who thinks he's a god i mean you can't even talk to your own husband this should have these things should have never happened i should have never been so arrogant as this just like hey i'm not going to bow down even though it was court protocol and there was an edict i should have just about i never thought despite all this God has not left us, his people. And you need to know that. Despite where you're at and even how you got there, even in your sin and the wrong things you've done, how do you not know that God has not placed you right where you're at for such a time as this? You see, you may have walked far from God. You think, man, you put God at a distance. You're just kind of going through the motions. You might even hate the fact that you're even here this morning. God has not left you. He is right there. Like I was talking with my kids this week. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. Even when we are faithless, 
faithless, without faith, not acting on faith. He is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, Mordecai is appealing to Esther. Don't you see? Despite the fact that all the wicked things that have happened, God in his sovereignty has allowed you to be right where you're at so that you may act. And this is how God works. He brings us to a place where we simply cannot move. It is really a picture of the gospel. God takes us to a place where we cannot actually function. We, we see our sin. We realize there's nothing I can do. I can't clean up my act. I can't conform. I can't change me. Then you see the mercy and the beauty of the Savior. He brings us to the hard place so that we see the loveliness and greatness of him. And some of you, you're like, you know, I can actually start relating to this story. Maybe your life is a total mess. Part of it is bad things that have happened to you. Some of it is your own sin and things that you brought on yourself. Some of it, you're like, I don't even know what happened. But here I am, and it is a mess. Don't you realize that God has brought you to this place for such a time as this? And so he, he makes this appeal to her, and how does Esther respond? Well, you don't have to guess. Look at verse 15. Look at transformation. Then Esther told him to reply to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. She's saying, I want you to fast for me. Literally, pray, refuse to eat, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. Now she's actually going to share her faith with her maidens. Not only is she appealing, I want you to pray for me. There's like a resurgence of faith. I am going to have my maidens. We're all going to fast. And then look at this. And thus I will go. I'll move. I'm making a decision. I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. I'm going to actually break the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. I mean, now you see this courageous resolve in her life. Let me just tell you something. Your belief is going to determine your behavior, what you really believe. You see, Esther has been the little glitter gal. I'm sure she liked being the queen. But you see, she's found something far more valuable than her own looks and livelihood in a queen, as a queen. She has found a relationship with God. And it's so great that she's now even willing to risk her own life because her belief now determines her behavior. She's become bold. She's become courageous. I mean, this is not the Esther of the previous chapters who just goes to the flow. Now she's saying, if I perish, I perish, but I've got a great treasure now, and that treasure is God. And what you find here is that you've got Mordecai and Esther. They've gone from being complacent and content to conceal their faith to be courageous enough to willing to die for it. Let me tell you, when Mordecai is standing at the gate and he's crying and wailing, he's broken and repentant, he's dressed up in sackcloth and ashes, he's putting his life on the line. And Esther's about to do the same, and she's expecting to die, but she is going to trust God. And what you see is a faithful God bringing about transformation in a very flawed and fallen person. Let me, let me give you this quote by Carolyn Justice, Carolyn Custis James. She writes in her book, Lost Women of the Bible. Like a lot of women of today, Esther was lulled to sleep by the culture's anesthetizing message that a woman's value depends on how she looks 
and on her ability to please others. Esther's story awakens us to the bold biblical message that God values and counts on his daughters as kingdom builders. The true beauty of Esther now arises. It's not about what she looks like. It's about who's inside, depth, character, willing to take a stand, a kingdom-minded woman. She is willing to put it all on the line. She is a woman of, of strength. She's got value, and she is growing in God. And she is, she is maturing right in front of our very eyes. And you know what's happening? She's forced to. It's kind of like plants, like a tree. You know, if a tree finds itself where it's like in drought conditions, i.e. Texas, okay, you know what it needs? It needs water. So what does the tree do? It literally, its roots keep shooting down. It's just eagerly, aggressively searching for water wherever it can find it. It'll go through rocks. It'll go through anything to find water because it needs water to live. And it is the drought that creates the depth because the roots are looking for water. And once a tree has bigger roots, that's when it actually flourishes and the trunk grows and it starts branching out and bearing more fruit. That's how it works. Trials create depth. Let me tell you, that's how it works in the lives of believers. The hard things, your bad decisions, your evil mindset, your angry attitude, the wicked things that you've done, the, the hurtful things that you've said, the relationships that you've severed, the covenants that you've broke, the hardships that you face, the health issues that are upon you, the difficulties that you're facing financially, personally, intellectually, they are meant to drive you to depth in God experience his faithfulness and that is what's happening here how does a faithful god transform fallen people the same way how is he transforming you and i well he oftentimes puts us in difficult circumstances i'll tell you your trials that you face they're either going to transform you as you sink deep roots in christ or they're going to erode you or you're going to be just a shell of what you even once were you see that's what's taking place here. They're being transformed. You and I. Our difficult circumstances, they are meant to drive us to God. Let me tell you something else, how God transforms a fallen people. He develops faith. He develops our faith. You and I, we've, we've taken a lot of wrong terms. turns, right? haven't we? We've made bad decisions. We don't want it to be public. We don't want people to know. But in reality... We've made some pretty bad choices in our lives, haven't we? And they've had consequences. And I want you to know that if you break God's laws, they're going to have a breaking effect on your life. Now, Christ can eternally save you from your sins, but if you break the laws of the land or you break the laws of God, it is going to affect you. And let me tell you, it is going to be painful and you're not going to like it. But that's how it works. But you need to know something. That God is more powerful than your sin. God is more powerful than your sin. You are not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by the bad decisions you've made. Your life can experience the goodness and the strength of God. And that is the great news of the gospel. We've all messed up. But our righteousness is not found in our behavior, how we've cleaned up our act. It's found in Christ, the perfect one. And you need to know this, that God is at work even in your failures. Can you believe it? Man, that is such good news for a guy like me. God is at work in our failures. 
That's what we see in the book of Esther. You see, what you believe about God and what you believe about his love for you and his commitment to you are some most profound beliefs about yourself. And as Christians, we have not only the promises of God like Mordecai, we've also got the person of Jesus Christ who fulfills many of those promises and the presence of his spirit who actually lives in our lives. Our faith is developed by him. And hope and confidence in this life is not found in your faithfulness to God, but it is found in God's faithfulness to you. Don't look at your track record or how you're even doing right now. Look to how God is faithful to you. And it's in that context, in that garden, that your faith grows. And there's, with that comes some decisions that you make. Decisions to, to trust Christ. For salvation, to trust Christ right now in the midst of the difficult circumstances that you're in. There's decisions to forgive people, decisions on ethics and morals that you are making at this present time. What are you going to do? You have the opportunity to cheat on your taxes, in your business, with your spouse. What are you going to do? It is these defining decisions where we literally we're going to cling to God even if no one else knows. But it's how God transforms us because it's in a crisis that not only reveals your character, a crisis can actually develop your character because it forces you to seek deeper roots in him. And these are just everyday decisions too. Not only the big ones, but just in everyday decisions, what's happening is God is changing us day by day. And finally, just be looking for displays of his grace. Looking for the ability to develop convictions and courage, dependence upon God, connection with him you see when you see these things happening in your life even now as you see yourself drawn to trust christ these displays of his grace they're transforming your life and our brokenness is meant to draw us into a greater faith in god's greatness that's what our brokenness and our trials and our difficulties are meant to do and who knows Maybe God has placed you in these circumstances, even with your sin, for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing chapter of the Bible. Transformation on display. And God, I sense that even now, hearts are being wrestled with. People are even making decisions. To trust you, to identify with you, to trust your son Jesus to walk away from the poles of this world to know the goodness of your grace. So God, would it be a reality. May we know your change in our lives and may be convinced of your goodness and your providence, even in the difficulties and even in the sin of our lives. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for the cleansing and the hope that is found in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.